0: Welcome to the Cinephile Hits of It Podcast, brought to you by the Ruminations Radio Network and sponsored by Film Obsessive. This is the Tyree Film Movie Debate, hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan.
1: And I'm William Johnson. Sorry, I don't know why I did that. I read it immediately. Sorry.
0: You're so Italian. I should have got the Chicago Irish uh, accent out for that one. Yeah,
1: I just uh, alienated like half of our European audience. Great. So, I,
0: so so should I help you out and read the rest of this intro in my shitty Italian would that help no
1: don't
0: do that we <laughs> need an
1: international audience
0: uh, ladies urge. and gentlemen we're damn glad to have you folks <laughs> even those friends it's from the coffee this is all for Tim's sake. with share passions and high fives and Pratt castings wash away any place for hate. No matter what, we encourage you all to eat the mushrooms and love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the marinara sauce is on the stove. This hissy fit is on. This week, we welcome back the two duo hosts of the Cinematic Underdogs con, uh, podcast. I'm going to spit it all out correctly. Paul Keelan and Jordan Puga. Welcome back, gentlemen.
2: Oh, mia. <laughs> actually,
0: yeah. They're going to do it too. Uh, yeah,
2: thanks for having us back. You're it's welcome.
0: You're welcome. Me,
1: Luigi. Well, oh, here's man. the thing: no one can make fun of us because we're not actually making fun of Italians. We're just doing Jared Leto and House of Gucci. That's all we're doing. Yeah, We're, not, we're, yeah, we're, just, we're yeah. just mimicking that performance. So we,
0: we we promise that's all we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Please,
1: don't please don't cancel us. Uh, not driver
0: uh, either. Despite the lack of clues, despite the over-obvious accents, uh, Jordan and uh, Paul are back to do another Michael Mann double with us, only this time around, it's the current awards contender, Ferrari. His big comeback to cinema. So um, how our format works is this. Much like last time, we'll do five interrupted minutes of each man to kind of shower their praise or state their minor case or use their five interrupted minutes to present any counterpoints of, inter- inter- of any intellectual scorched earth. If there's this is a movie they like or don't like, uh, our guests will go first. One way or another, after the four of us are done, we'll open it up for about 30 minutes to share a conversation with the hissy fit or the Italian stereotypes are really going to get chippy. So uh, <laughs> here's where this is going to land and let's go. Um where are people land on Ferrari?
3: I'm in the uh, dislike category. I'll start there.
2: He's in, yeah, Jordan, oh. do you want to go first? I mean, I know you guys like to start with the love, but we I feel do. like I went first for Black Hat, and okay, I, I don't know. I like Mono Mono. All right. And it's, in well, my,
1: it's, it's my number 10 of the year, so oh, I'm gosh. definitely in the love category. So
0: I will go last again as the hater then. Check, check, check. All right, Jordan, you wanted it,
3: you got it. All right, uh let me start with I think my favorite part, and I'm saying this i ironically, I guess is I like Kylo Bain in this. uh we were doing some funny voices <laughs> to start this, but the funniest voice in this movie is Adam Driver's accent. Um, oh, man. yeah, it was Kylo Ren and Bain combined to me I, I was that was my biggest i think that stuck with me the most <laughs> after the, after my first viewing of this unfortunately um. Uh, my other uh, takeaway is Penelope Cruz as the as the side chick. And I say that in quotes in this one. What what world are we living in? Uh, but I loved her in this. Penelope Cruz is awesome. Uh, one of the best characters in this. Um, I struggled with this one. This one was. I came into this with because uh, we talked about last time when I was guest on here about expectations. I think Paul did a great job of tempering my expectations. Cause we've been covering and watching racing movies a lot before this one. Uh, I just watched the uh, Gran Turismo on Netflix. Pretty good, by the way, definitely recommend that one. Uh, but this is just opposite of that. So Paul gave me a good heads up. He's like, Re- reshift your brain uh, going into this. But this was, uh, I left this thinking this is definitely, uh, I guess you can call it like Oscar bait. I think some people call this. Um, I've, also, went in this kind of blind. I don't know. I didn't hear much about it in terms of like hype, trailers, anything like that. Uh, I just knew uh, Adam Driver was in it. That's was, that was kind of like my way, way of going into it. Uh, but I definitely left this, like asking myself, is this even a story worth telling? Like, is this a, I call it a biopic or a biopic, whatever, uh, worth making, was what I, what I left this uh, thinking about this. Um, I felt there's a lot of just kind of plot dump with the dialogue in terms of our characters uh inner demons and why they are antagonists talking about um excuse me uh Enzo Ferrari and um Laura Ferrari their strained relationship uh the expression through that was very forced um <laughs> I remember the scene where we literally have Adam Driver staring out of a window uh talking and that was supposed to be intensely and intensely delivered i feel like a lot of it was in some ways ironic going back to these this old style of cinema this old style of acting this foreign style of acting that's uh like film 101 if you're if you're in the art world or an artist uh and trying to recreate that i think it just felt flat for me a lot of it um i felt myself a lot of it just looking at like like, just referencing that scene I'm talking about where Adam Driver's staring out the window, um, having this intense conversation over, you know, the future of the company, who's going to control it, uh, the remorse for the lost son, etc. Kind of, I don't know if all those are all spoilers, but sorry if I'm spoiling it. Um, but I very much felt like uh, it was like a set. Like, he wasn't looking out a window. He was looking out a window at the cameras and lighting crew and the makeup crew, everyone looking at him. Like I wasn't... Mo- uh, the idea that this is like going to be a contender for for an Oscar was I found mind blowing. Um, I get that going in there, like that's just the prestige it carries. But as I'm watching this, I was almost like laughing in my head as a viewer that this is going to get a lot of praise. Uh, I get that we have like two other people who are going to praise that come and come and counter me on this one for sure. But yeah, even the, the areas where I'm intrigued by like the form of the film and stuff like that wasn't moving up. I hated the close ups in this. I never thought I'd have to see Adam driver's pores so much in such weird angles. <laughs> and he kind of became, came became a pet peeve of mine. I'm like, what the fuck are we shooting here? Like, I mean, uh, you know, the haircut, the it might have been a wig was, it was poorly done because of these closeups. You get to see it. So detailed. It was bad. It was a bad makeup job. Um, and again, as I'm saying this, I'm like, this is going to get like a lot of nominations. We're going to see this, this dude, uh, the camera going on and waiting for his reaction to see if he wins for whatever he's nominated for um i i was watching this and saying i should have spent my ticket money on because this is the first movie i've seen in the new year and like the first movie i've seen i think since like november and i was like i probably should have gone and seen aquaman <laughs> it was one of the things i was thinking actually um so i want to end my little rant here with will this replace there will be blood as the boringest movie to win an Oscar, and I say this as someone who likes "There Will Be Blood." Oh
1: but, man, I don't oh, think man. there's a lot
3: of similarities between those two movies. I don't that. think
1: you're getting—I don't think you're getting a Christmas card this year.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just gonna say that this is solely on me. This is not on behalf of the Puga family. This is this is the the son. So if you want to tell him to disown me? I fully totally appreciate that, Michael. Man. <laughs>
0: wow aquaman and most boring movie to win an oscar well paul you, as usual on your show you get to follow that
2: yeah i know uh i mean first of all the slander against there'll be blood i mean i could see nitpicking ferrari but there'll be blood had no business man uh you're not gonna get an oscar card for uh, <laughs> a christmas card from me either after that one george i'm <laughs> just kidding <laughs> um for everyone, disclaimer: uh, Jordan is only one half of the Cinematic Underdogs podcast, so <laughs> I will try to rectify it a little. Uh, at the same time, I was a bit ambivalent about this. Ultimately, I liked it. I like man. I prefer him uh, in his vibe films. Uh, I don't know which one is going to be released first, but we also cover Black Hat with Cinephile Hissy Fit, and like the Black Hat Miami Vice worlds, I like a little more than this like period PC world. Um, that's a weird word, period PC. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, I, I thought there were some interesting ideas here. Um, a lot has been said about the accents. they're terrible, pretty much across the board. Um, it's a mixed bag. I've heard some of the defenses, and they make sense. Uh, first of all, you have a lot of Italian actors who have that Italian accent when they're speaking English, and so you sort of want to have your American actors match that. You don't really have a actual language to work from. You just have this stereotype, so you're, it's already a little rough. But, I mean, you have Penelope Cruz, who kind of has like it down pat, because I think going from Spanish to Italian isn't so hard. Then you have Adam Driver, who doesn't try to do it in House of Gucci. He's the only one who doesn't really try to do the accent in House of Gucci, which works. Um, and here he tries to do it. Uh, for me, it fluctuates. Sometimes... I can sink into it, and sometimes it was conspicuous and glaring and kind of took me out of the film, um, which was problematic. His wig, I think, is a little distracting at times. I don't know if it's a wig, but just like his hair, it just doesn't look authentic with the tone of his face. Um, So you don't really believe his age. Um, And so the same with his paunch, like whatever they used to, as a quote-unquote fat suit to make him a little like bulkier didn't really fit the proportions of his body. But these are all incidental, trivial stuff that, I don't want to get too wrapped up in. Um, I mean, just to finish it off, right, the most conspicuous problem with the accents is Shailene Woodley, who almost has a non-existent Italian accent. Uh, So it feels like she belongs back in, like, uh, I don't know, the Divergent movies or Big Little Lies. It's very bizarre. Um, And then juxtaposing her with Penelope Cruz, that contrast is striking because Penelope Cruz, first of all, is a tour de force in this. She's amazing. She is the shining star of the film acting wise but she's walking around in this like dark ominous cloud of rage um and just killing it and shailene woodley is just like kind of sinking into the scenery maybe that's on purpose but it and maybe there's sort of a lightness darkness going on there to create a a dichotomy between the two households the two worlds um but I, the angelic sort of softness that you want to get spiritually from Shailene Woodley, I don't feel like you got enough to like to get um, the full yin and yang that I may have wanted. Um, but I thought there was a lot of really cool ideas in this. So I ultimately did take a lot from this movie and think there's a lot in the text. There's some really amazing scenes. Um, even if they're a little ham-fisted, the scene in the church where all the Ferrari workers and Ferrari himself are checking their, socks, their, their watches, right? Because they could hear the gunshot on the race. And then they're giving a sermon about racing. I mean, it's so on the nose, it's almost laughable, but it makes you think when you get into the text of the film, when you get into the scenes of Ferrari telling his son about how beauty and form synthesize together, right? I think he says something along the lines of Anything that is beautiful naturally works better. Perhaps he says the inverse. I'm, he might be saying anything that works really well tends to be beautiful. But I think that becomes a thesis for the film, right? It, it's something that wants to be very formalistic and have beauty then emerge from that. And there's this notion in this movie, this almost cosmic theological notion of, of symmetry and formality Uh, and engineering synthesis as creating something both beautiful and performatively excellent or superior. And I think that's a really intriguing, um, first of all, theme. But I also think it's intriguing when you think about this as one of Michael Mann's later age films, right? He's in the twilight of his career. He'll make, I mean, now there's talk the last week of Heat 2 coming out, but you know, he's probably got a few more in the bag, but he's definitely in a reflexive mode. Um, and that comes out. The other scene I loved in this is the opera scene. Um, it's very, this makes me sound sort of um, aloof or like highbrow or whatever, but it, it, it is so accurate, which I always am. But I know uh, it's Proustian. It's so Proustian. There's these long passages in in Search of Lost Time where he's at the opera and it's like 300 pages almost. It, it, if anyone knows, it's like a 4000 page book, uh six volumes. But he's just going character to character in those scenes and getting into their psychology and the way man is able to do that in shorthand and for us to get all these flashbacks to flesh out this community of characters, to get their interpersonal relations, to get their traumas, to get their 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 pathologies. I thought was pretty be- beautifully weaved together. Um there's also an interesting Subversion and take on sports tropes. Like there's the, the rookie, and then there's the veteran racer, and the rookie's the upstart who's trying to impress Ferrari. And Ferrari has an interesting moral sensibility, right? He, he has a wall up that said it's explicitly said that he built a wall after two friends of his died. And he's now quite, um, unca- not uncaring, right? But he masks. His feelings and this stoicism that comes off is extremely blunt and callous. Uh, you know, the first death in the film, he immediately turns to this upstart who he was just ignoring, and says, "Like, come in on Monday. You got the job." Basically, three seconds after a driver died in front of him. Right. Um, that immediacy shows that he is an unfeeling. Um, Dogged personality in pursuit of excellence at the cost of human life. So there's got so much yeah, yeah. ideas working here. I think yeah. there's enough.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, top ten of the year.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and, and um, just getting my timer. My timer started here. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong. Uh, this was definitely an experience where I was trying to figure out what was going on while I was watching the film, and, and I think. I think the reason me and Don talk about this all the time. And we, one of our major issues with film criticism in general is that everything's either the greatest of all time, the worst of all time. There's really not a lot of nuance. And I think what's refreshing about this film is that you really don't get a complete picture until the very, um, final, tragic event and it just puts everything into perspective, but you have to earn that you have to get to that. And that's why I think in the end it prevailed for me as one of my favorite films of the year, because I legitimately was kind of wondering, okay, where is this going? And I wasn't sure kind of like the black hat experience. I was kind of like, okay, I don't know if this is working. I don't, I, I, it's working here. It's not working there. And I was, I was kind of in a, emotional and philosophical kind of, uh, I don't know, like kind of purgatory, I guess, where I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to think about this when it's over, but then it kind of delivers at the end. It really delivers and kind of puts a very strong, um, cap on the whole thing. And it, it just, all the pieces come together for me on an emotional and, uh, uh, philosophical, uh, level and what, what i say what i mean by this is that um you know the character seems pretty like like uh paul was mentioning like you're not sure if this person's supposed to be very likable however there is a lot of uh uh media literacy out there that's kind of shockingly bad there was a particular there was a particular article uh so somebody wrote where it was like you know michael mann is is worshiping this this person and the audience isn't supposed to care that all these tragic things happen and like it's it's actually the opposite this is the this is an anti-hero worship film and that's part of why i really loved it um i love that every single victory for our character uh in this is either tinged with immense failure or absolutely means nothing like there's no consequence to the victory like for example you know part of the expectation that the trope of the plot is like okay is he going to win this race right he needs to win this race he needs to get in the top three whatever right common sports uh film story trope right and you get to this point where you're so invested in that and you're kind of you're kind of back cataloging all these other things that are going on on the emotional levels that when and and spoilers, I guess, because I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't seen it, but you know, when the when the crash happens that just kills all these people, you know, you get to this point where Patrick Dempsey wins, right? And you're just like, you're just like, wow, who cares? Like they, they built they kind of got you on this emotional journey where you're like you want to see him succeed. But then, like I said, at the end, it kind of just shows how inconsequential and unimportant it is. This is something that even though there it's a film that I like, Ford versus Ferrari, you're not getting that moral and emotional entanglement where you're kind of like you know like in Ford versus Ferrari in the end it's like yes, I want to see Ford win, right? In this one it makes you question like who is the winner here? Like and those are the kind of things I like having debates about with my movie with my movie viewing is like when i sit there and there's some uh, genre subversions that make me th- sit back and really think about what am i watching and then on a grander scale you know like people are kind of and this is the problem that uh, house of gucci had and a lot of stuff and even ford versus ferrari and wave i think it's an excellent film um, you know the brand and logo recognition and and culture of worshiping brands and idols and things and not really thinking about the consequences of what it takes to become a brand or an idol for so many people. Like, yes, Ferrari is always going to be known as this pristine, uh, precise, beautiful, calculated machine. Right. But like, what did it take to get there? You know, and that's, that's kind of what this film provides at the end, all the stuff that's leading up to it, where you're kind of sitting there going, "Mm, I don't know about this. It all leads up to a fantastic, uh, fantastic ending that puts it all together and really delivered for me. And like I was probably sitting, you know, before the completed project, you always got to finish what you're doing before you can, you can say something. It's like the people who uh, this person shall remain nameless that judges films without even seeing them on our Facebook feeds. Uh, But um, you got to go through the whole thing and it's worth, it's worth the journey for me. And on top of that real quick, Penelope Cruz is absolutely fantastic in this. She is incredible in this movie. One of my favorite performances of the year.
0: All right. All right. Oh, I gotta be the hater again. Uh, no, no, I can't, I can't say full hater because much like Will said, um, there, this is right in the middle between, you know, the masterpieces I don't name and the trash I don't name. So it's just, it's a very fine film, finally active film. Um, I admire the passion project, Michael Mann. He's well, who's been wanting to make this movie for 30 years. This is supposed to be his follow up to the last weekends. He got De Niro to kind of attempt to do this after heat. Um it's fallen through different people and um, Hugh Jackman, all the different folks who've who've circled this project, Christian Bale after other times. Like um and yeah, so um Michael Mann's coming in here with um passion for this. And and he's got a very tricky story to tell that Will's right does take investment. But um I, I I'm there's shifts here I would do just to kind of find your investment kind of being in the right place. Um, the, the central race, which we've talked about and like how Will said, yeah, all of this is earned and and, and culminates in a massive tragedy. And it's very, and like you said, to be an anti-hero story where normally we're tracking for a victory of some sort in, in a hero worship story. We're tracking towards a, an abominable tragedy for this one, and, which completely levels what Will's talking about with this whole idea of um flipping the hero worship script completely in reverse. Um, I feel like the, that's i saw somebody else say this i i don't know if it was on letterboxd or somewhere but i don't, i don't i don't have the proper credit to give to it but um someone said if this movie started where it ended you could still do this arc you can still have this pain you could still kind of show the man at in in the fragile state he is because after this 1957 uh, miley magley race like the sport got completely changed. Like they stopped doing these races or they changed the, all the safety things. And uh, um, all of it was saddled against Ferrari as like the, the hubris of this man who was pushing for this race, puts all the high, you know, put, tries to put all the best drivers into it. Um, Obviously his driver the one that's killed. It's the wonder kid, young kid. And, you know, they, they, lay, you know, they laid this disaster at his feet as, as in terms of fault. And it took a good bit of time to kind of investigate that down and not be his fault where, I feel like if we watch those challenges uh, f- post this movie, at the same time as you're still filtering through the f- Penelope Cruz stuff and the illegitimate son stuff, um, I feel like there's there's places you can go there compared to what it took to get to this one. Um, I know that's playing Archer quarterback and like, oh, I would do it this way instead of this way, but um, um, I would. I would. Um, or it, it, or it's Penelope Cruz or I want to watch a movie just Penelope Cruz, you know, because she is so damn good. Where if, if we're watching her arc, so to speak, kind of be the central thing. And in something, let's say 20 minutes shorter for an hour and 50 minutes, um, where Enzo's just kind of this, I don't want to say specter figure, but just the the second lead instead of the first lead, and we're just centered on her in that kind of way. Um, I and this is a terrible comparison. Um, and not quite a Will Johnson terrible comparison, but if this was like Maestro uh, with Bradley Cooper, where we're we're you know where we um where we obviously by the Cooper's the, you know, the big, the big enigmatic, uh, icon that's in the center of this. But at the same time, every root, every story, every thread of it goes back to the woman he loves or the woman that has been his love or the one that challenges him. If, if we can get that movie to where Cruz isn't all the way sidelined or all the way kind of out of it the way she is, she has obviously great big scenes and their and their dinner arguments. Fantastic. Um, but, um, if you make that movie and you put the racing to the side, there's something there. If, or if you put racing forward and you stay on this Maglia Maglia race and the, the, the aftermath of that to speak to the sport and speak to the measure of the man and the, and the hubris of the you know the individual and the company and all that, I think there's, there's pieces you can do there. To shove all of those into one movie um, in an anti-hero way, in an anti-hero worship way, and in this slow roll to get there, it's tricky. Um, and then by the time you get to Shaylene Woodley, who I, I, is she 36, 37? I, I, between this and dumb money and a couple of other films, like, I don't know how she went from being, you know, the, the 20 something eight girl to now playing everyone's wife and mom. Um, and cause she's not old enough to do that. And and this point, it's
1: Hollywood. Is
0: Hollywood. Baby. I, I feel so bad for her. Cause this is, a, she's going to be gone in five years and we will be like, what the hell happened to Shaylene Woodley? Well she turned 40, you know? So we're, She's already on this unfortunate spiral way, and you're right. She just does not fit this movie, cannot play those same scenes with the other actors that are there. Um, Normally, that stuff doesn't take me on the movie um, accent or hair or uh, makeup-wise, but she she can't hang, and and that's tricky there. Um, Or if there's one more third angle I'll propose, and those will be my closing piece before we get there. Um, maybe if the, if this hot young driver is this way, where there's an arc, and obviously the the fan girlfriend who's there, and you know the kiss of death, famous thing, you know, famous image before his death. Like if you take the movie and you go there, and you then feature a wonderfully an ethnic an ethnically accurate actor instead of Adam Driver, and Adam Driver is your supporting heavy that's kind of looming around, and you tell that story that ends in tragedy, ends in investigation, that could work too. Um, I don't know. I just see lots of ways where this movie could plug and play and shift things just a little a little better than where it did. Um, but, I'm, I, but I admire the craft, and it's nice to see Michael Mann back after eight years. He, we've been missing him, and it's nice to get him back. Alright, ladies and gents, um, let's take a quick break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. You've been listening to another Fine Point podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent ET from
2: Oh God, It Hurts!
0: And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcast here on ruminationsradionetwork.com Alright. Thank you very much. Welcome back, everybody.
2: Yeah, dispense I, the yeah. ideas here. What up? <laughs> I love that uh, it was perfectly rounded, right? We had Jordan with the like completely against the film. We had me. I think he was mixed giving positive. We had Will that was very positive and then we had Don, who is mixed but yeah. leaning negative, I thought that was a really rounded mm. group.
1: Well, that's why we're sure. the, Well, that's why, by the way, guys, I just got an email, uh, oh, about last Ooh. week that of all the podcasts in the world that have cinephile in the name, uh-huh. we are number eight in the world. Now, there's Ooh. only seven, so I don't know how that happened. But <laughs> the point is, <laughs> but oh, boy.
2: But that's uh, so yeah,
1: we're, that's why we're the best cinephile podcast—at least top eight in the world—because we mm. have great conversations like this.
2: 100 percent. Um, a lot, was, a lot was said. At least we're cinematic, so we're not against each other there. We could be. Uh, well, mm-hmm, and conference. I felt oh. like
1: since Paul's here, I got a, I got to up my game a little bit. I used some big SAT words Dope. in my, <laughs> in my, uh, my five minutes.
0: Oh, uh, English uh, yeah. teachers.
2: Yes, I wanted air edition. <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. You need to try on like a suit connoisseur of Ferrari vehicles. Yeah, I, I, sure. Sure. Uh, but I, I actually really <laughs> lo- appreciated what you said on a, on a more serious note about the sports tropes. And I think what everyone said, um, cause it's interesting, this is a sports movie, but it's a biopic at the mm-hmm. same time. And it's like, you're watching it. You're like, what does it want to be? And you're a little bit, I think, confused, I think will express that maybe the most clearly out of all of us, this feeling while watching it of where is it going, and um, the sort of inner dialectic of like trying to think about it while not also jumping to conclusions too quickly. Um, And a lot of this movie will come down to how people um, read the shocking scene, right? Uh, We saw this Mm. in a theater with, uh, it was me, my wife, and uh, a homeless dude, straight up. Right in the very front row, I thought he was sleeping the whole time, and then the shocking scene happens. Right, and it's a shocker. Yeah. And oh, all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. you, all of a sudden, you hear the dude scream, "Holy fucking shit! What mm-hmm. were those dumb motherfuckers doing there, or something like that?" <laughs> yeah. Which is a completely irrational. And you know, I, I'm not. I don't want to psychoanalyze the guy or anything. But what I thought was actually interesting as well is he was expressing this sort of guttural response, this like horror. And a horror that if we, if you articulate outwards, right, you want to like immediately press the blame on someone, right? Which yes. the film gets into, right? You want to have a scapegoat, and for him, yeah. he he articulated blame on the people who are standing there, the victims, which obviously isn't where we want to go. But that doesn't yeah. interest me. What interests me is that gut reaction that scene has. It is visceral mm. and whoa, very yeah. very. I, I, I it's been a while. I mean, I
0: can't believe they showed what they showed.
1: Yeah. Well, that that was that was the amazing part. Is is um, the film? You're kind of wondering why this film is rated what it's rated to because throughout there's no there's I mean there is a sex scene but it's not Mm -hmm. you know it's not very like visceral like it's their clothes are on pretty much Mm -hmm. and I think there's some cussing maybe. But Maybe. you know, there's no violence or anything, and you're kind of like, what, why is this movie rated the way it is? And then you know why because you're look, it looks like Saving Private Ryan out there at one point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, they're yeah. they're showing bodies like you know split in half and legs missing and all kinds of stuff. And I do remember there being like a, a collective pin drop in the theater because oh, people yeah. did uh.
3: not know how to understand how to process this, and mm-hmm. and uh, because some of them were waking up just like Paul's homeless dude because. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that last scene, then the movie ends a little bit out there. So I feel like Paul got his money's worth on his ticket. I'm jealous, Paul. (laughs) Well, I was nodding off in the movie at times like Jordan, man, come on. I don't sleep during movies either ever. I was like, there are some parts in this where it drags and drags. And I hate to say it, something so violent. It needs something like that. Because again, it's a racing movie. We only have one other crash scene. Mm -hmm. where you know we got like a body flying up in the air and it's it's cool like it's it's shocking i guess you will (laughs) um this is going for like for for those of us a little older this is going for like red asphalt right with the crash if you ever see that movie sure uh, even
0: cocaine even cocaine bearing the ambulance you know uh
3: but also i'll be honest we live in a culture of there's such ultra violence like i'm thinking like metal has tons of scenes like this with Car races and stuff like that, were like I was on the opposite end of that spectrum with this movie being so dull as it was. That scene stands out for sure. It's going to come off as that, but it's a little. But I, I think it's. And I wasn't like blown away by it. again some of these close-ups on it. I was like, bad, bad, like prosthetics. You know, I've seen better busted up bodies in horror movies.
0: Yeah, maybe
3: like, Private Ryan you mentioned. You know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was like, it, the movie didn't need that jump though, unfortunately. I, I I think it does because
1: uh it's a it's kind of a physical representation, and I'm not trying to get like I said, I, I have a lot of philosophical looks at this film. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about you know the literal destruction of like a family, right? And mm-hmm. now we're we're yeah. looking at that on a physical visceral level because one of the cruxes of the movie, and this is why it also uh defined it for me as an anti hero worship film is the fact that in order to get what he needed, he was willing to literally sacrifice his living son, his mm-hmm. living son's name uh, to get what he needed, you know? And like, there's just, I'm I'm kind of coming up with this on the fly. So I know it's not totally making sense, but I guess, I guess my point is, is that like, we're, we're getting a lot of emotional wreckage, and then to yeah. kind of see it happen visually, it just gives you that extra charge to me. Like it it just mm-hmm. seemed fitting and perfect it did. for what we're getting on an emotional level. So I right. actually find now I, I will admit that yes, the and this has been a problem. There was also a scene like this in Black Hat. I think there was like an explosion on a street where it just looks really bad. Um, it looks like Expendables 4, you know, where it's just not good. But <laughs> I, I think it I think it comes down to the fact that like uh Michael Mann is, is kind of getting the pseudo francis ford coppola treatment where like people know this guy's gonna go over budget and he's gonna Mm -hmm. you know he's got these huge bombs on his resume despite the the name value and the art value of it so i I just don't think that the the budget was there for something Mm -hmm. of that magnitude and there definitely is a little bit of a disconnect you can see that maybe the cgi isn't perfect and the and the makeup isn't perfect but i think if and this all comes back to vibes you know like that me and paul are talking about like if you're in the story it's just like when you watch something from the past that has practical effects that maybe don't live up anymore, you know, to, to the current day or, or clearly look fake, or it's clearly a puppet or I can see the strings or whatever. As long as you're emotionally invested, like that doesn't bother me. And that's why I never, I, I never even noticed, you mentioned some things about like the I, I, first, first of all, I've never been an accent guy. I've never cared. I don't know why. Like it has to be something like extremely Not egregious. True. So that never bothered me. But I never even noticed really like the the bodysuit or the or the accents. I mean, Shailene Woodley, I kind of I, I could tell like she was dipping in and out of it. But for the most part, I was just kind of like it visually engaged to the point where like that kind of stuff really didn't bother me, and or I'm sorry, uh, emotionally engaged enough so that didn't bother me too much. So mm-hmm. um, yeah.
0: No, um, and, and this is why you hear me shifting, you know, trying to shift plot lines. Like, if, if that big tragedy and big crash, that jolt that is that pin drop scene, if that was more two-thirds of the way through the movie and not the last, you know, the last third of the movie, and you have to come down from that or you have to answer for that. Like, there, there's something, I don't know, you could still put some poignancy in there and still tug in a lot of directions, whereas this is, you descend to well, it and it's tricky, you know? It's an
1: interesting point you say about answering to it. I think that's kind of the point. Yeah is that We are watching a movie called Ferrari, which Ferrari is this world renowned product. Mm. And all of these things that this guy does, you know, abandons his wife, abandons his lover, abandons his kid, literally is offering jobs to people. The minute his like most trusted drivers die, yeah. the fact that he's trying to get all this stuff. There are, there, there is no answers for people like that. We see that to this day, like the people that have power or name recognition or idolatry, whatever, they they sure. don't answer for these things, and that's that's kind of why the film does not glorify this. And and it's actually surprising to me that I don't know if the Fer- it wasn't like Maestro where like the you know the Bernstein family like signed off on it. So I don't know if Ferrari was like yeah we're cool with this, but. This yeah. is definitely not like, not like a flattering whenever, portrait. That's whenever true. I look true. at fucking yeah. Ferraris now, I'm going to be like, oh, I had the guy who's uh, he, he denied his son his own name, and uh, you know, fucking mm-hmm. all these people died for the sake of precision. You know, like that was yeah. Um, that's going to yeah. leave yeah. a mark. That's going to leave a mark on for me. This movie will leave a mark on Ferrari to me.
3: Mm.
2: Like a stain it, it, it does no favors yet.
0: that this movie has to follow James Mangold's Ford vs Ferrari from a few years ago. Like in in the sizzle department, like it's. People are going to go into to
1: this movie. movie too. So Ferrari, yeah. Ferrari's lost to Ford. No boy. Uh, lost man yeah. driver. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: I, I agree with you, though, that it's an anti hero worship movie. Um, but I think it also is a bit sympathetic to Ferrari throughout. Um, it's soft to him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it 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 has empathy for him. I read that sure. man, what, what drew him to it was the irreconcilable sort of um, quagmires, like existentially and interpersonally that you end up in life facing and that have no easy answers. And he's in a lot of tricky predicaments throughout this. Um, You do understand that like he has, I forget their name specifically, right? But he brings up that he had two friends who died sometime before and that it had hardened him, right? He had become at some point calcified or shielded and closed off to the hurt, at least externally, right? To Uh this thing, and he comes to treat it in a very uh, technical way, like a tactician, right? That makes him feel like a sociopath. But Mm, I think then man also interweaves this uh, cosmic's too big of a word, but I think a theological Mm -hmm. uh, motif throughout the film of him as this carpenter figure, right? He almost likens him to Jesus in that speech in that Uh, sermon, right? Because they're they're they're, they're Definitely. creating a metaphor between the carpenter and the metal worker. And yep. Yep. there's an unfeeling thing to someone who's that powerful because their focus is on something that is a beyond the finite, beyond the ephemeral, which they do play with in the dialogue um, uh, quite a few times in this where his vision is, is beyond mere mortality. And, that makes him a very polarizing figure, right? Especially from yes. uh, audiences, right? Where we have a very humanistic tendency to view everything through, which is for good reason, right? That's the, like, one of the essential social forces that, that's like, that holds society and life and people together. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are these figures, um, these visionaries that kind of push up against that to a degree whether by necessity or whether by pathology, right? They turn into a psychopath, like more like a sociopath than a psychopath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And I think it's flirting with that. I think that that tension is there. And I think man does a decent job of not choosing sides um, too much. Um, but it definitely, and, uh, to go with you, Will, it doesn't glamorize him. You don't walk away from this thinking like, oh, Ferrari, what a yeah. dude, <laughs> what a dude.
1: Yeah, no, no. And, I, and I, to, to build on what you're saying, uh, yeah. If I may, if I may, yeah. um, is Absolutely. Like this, this was the reason why this is in my top ten. Uh, is it, it was between this, I believe, and Iron Claw for my tenth spot. Ah,
2: see,
0: so yeah, I got Iron Claw. But, yeah. Now here's
1: here's the thing. Now usually, like if you look at my top ten, like eight out of the ten are very emotional driven films. Like mm-hmm. they're they're films that made me cry. They're films that made me do that. And Iron Claw obviously made me. cry. <sighs> too. Yeah. Um, but. What what I like about Paul, what he's saying is like, is some of these figures. Yes, they are polarizing, but polarizing means that there's perspectives on both sides of support, and because mm-hmm. some people support this, some people that. To me, that that three-dimensionality is what kind of put this a little bit over the edge, over the emotional angle of Iron Claw. Because Iron Claw, uh, like I said, I I think the characters are great, but I think they are defined a little too much by the tragedy as opposed to like the actual, some of the human qualities of them on a, on a, like they're, they're good characters. And I say characters, I know they're real people. All these people are real, but in the sense of the movie, the characters kind of have certain levels to them where you're like, okay, well, this is the sensitive one and this is the, <laughs> the drug addicted one. And this is this one in iron cloud. Whereas this one really gets into some really deep, level stuff where it's like one minute you're like okay i like ferrari right now and then you're like oh what an asshole what he did and it it it, it goes on such an emotional complex ladder of characterization that that's kind of what puts it over the edge for me is that like yes i'm leaving with i think it was either paul or jordan said like yeah there's going to be a stain for me whenever i see ferrari Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's i also see the full human being there like with all their foibles and accomplishments and everything it's it's there right in front of you and it's it's not simple and it's not easy it's more real to me more real life that characterization and that's why it works i think for me and why i kind of push it over the edge over some other films for me
2: i think that comparison is so spot on right because iron claw is a so emotionally resonant right it has a a powerhouse and i Entertainment value that is that you get wrapped up in this family, right? But after Iron Claw finishes, there's not much to chew on or mull over or think about. Uh, you're like, wow, what a cursed family! How tragic! And that's not a knock, right? A film doesn't have to be complex or anything. But I do think Ferrari, I was more invigorated after the film for longer than Iron Claw, which I had a better, you know, experience in the theater, right? It hit me mm-hmm. on a deeper sure. nerve as I was watching it. But it didn't linger at all. I almost didn't know what to write about it. And I always know what to write about it because I don't like to just say, oh, it was a great film. Made me like feel a lot, you know? Right. Or, right. or damn, this family was cursed. How sad, you know? So mm-hmm. for that reason, I, I totally am on board. Um, this one is way more layered in its moral complexities than the, than the Iron Claw is. Mm-hmm. But the Iron Claw is so much more emotionally effective.
1: Right. And I, and I, I guess my point is, is that for the most part, I appeal to what appeals to me about making a film great is the emotional angle. So the fact Mm -hmm. that I, I mean, but the two films that probably are not overtly emotional that are on my top 10 list of the year are Oppenheimer and this, which are very cold and calculating Mm -hmm. and very, get really deep into things like really deep into characters to the point where you're like i think you can make some comparisons between ferrari himself and Oppenheimer and himself where there's moments where you're like this guy's a dick oh this guy's actually brilliant this guy's funny oh he's terrible like you know like there's just kind of like there's so much and like you said i like the idea of lingering like i still think about for, I saw Ferrari on Christmas day. It's now January 13th. I kind of still think about it every day. Yeah. I know it know. It sounds like obsessive, but that's not what it sounds like. But I kind of yeah. just think about, I, I kind I of think, I, I <laughs> yeah. think about so, it. A, I think about it a lot. Like, yeah, I guess yeah, that's the, my the, point when I, yeah, when I, the, so.
0: Yeah, I'm that guy with the iron claw. Or that's that's just haunting, and especially when you know. I mean, I grew up with wrestling enough where that one that one just reverberates like crazy. And then to know like they shaved off one brother that died, like it could have gotten worse. And and then yeah. yeah, like for for the iron claw, you have that great scene of like. Uh, of Zach Efron, you know, crying in front of his children, you know, and like that's that's like, the right yeah. coda you need there, and like oh, it's just sure. you know, and I'm not saying Ferrari needs that kind of coda by any means, but it still gets that where the son is welcome, you know, he, the idea is we're gonna you know come meet my other son who's in this tomb here, and like there's some there's an arc there. That again is very sympathetic, but um, but works all right, you know.
1: That actually is the only complaint I have about the film. Actually, is that is that is that text at the end that says like, "Oh yeah, once the wife died, the son got his name back." Like, Uh, (laughs) yeah, and and I know that that's factual. That's fine. Like, I know this is a biopic, but like from where I was at in the story, like it it kind of took some of the drama away because like I think part of the savagery of this subverting these expectations that you're kind of leaving, wondering like, and did that kid ever actually get to have his name? You know, mm. like that, yeah. that, that, and so to kind of put it on a bow. when you've seen this very complex thing was probably one of my only complaints actually, but I mean, you can't deny it, it actually happened. So I can't, I guess I can't really complain too much, but.
2: I, I like the fact that it does sort of get out of the reality of it, though, too, because, I mean, you could say that Penelope Cruz there is just vindictive and nasty, right? Because, like, it, it comes out of a, a place of almost spite and acrimony to, to give him this mandate that she then puts in his own hands, right? She says, I'm not holding you to this, right? I'm just expecting you to do this. This is not an order, but it is very much an order, right? Because she is sacrificing so much, having cashed out the money and given it back to him so that he can basically bribe and extort the media to shape his yeah. narrative, which is a fascinating twist too. like a very modern commentary on media and narrative writing for a biopic, right? And this idea of our image as this thing that is constructed secondhand and that power and money can influence. Um, mm. but, but there is something to be said that like, her trauma is real too. And her Absolutely. pain is real. Yeah. And he's, he's also, he, he, if, if, if it was a great world, idealistic world, he would immediately give his son the name. He has, of course. he wants oh. to give his son the name. So that shows that he is torn in almost this impossible situation.
1: Yeah. And, and I never got that impression. The reason why I love this performance from Penelope Cruz is I, it's kind of like the anti Skyler effect from breaking bad. Like, you know how people like hate Skyler for some reason, yeah, even though she's completely like a victim. I never got that like I never sat there and thought like, oh, what a bitch. Like I was just like, I was always like, that mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, like yeah. she's she's stuck too. I mean, because yeah. she's kind of stuck. I mean, and the other thing I like too, because there's always always on film Twitter, there's always this, you know, there's always that anti-sex there. There's always that yeah. anti-sex scene thing going around every now and then yeah. where people are like sex is yeah. stupid. That was one of the most relatable things. I mean, I know some of you guys are married out there. I don't know, Jordan, I don't know your situation, but like
0: i'm he's a newlywed
1: oh newlywed okay fine yeah i'm the only never been married uh person on here uh i've never been married
0: and i you're you're not missing anything and
1: everybody knows everybody knows that knows me in real life and probably could pick up to the uh, uh the broadcast the podcast that i'm not i i don't have the best judgment and i have wild relationships that scene where like they come home and they're just yelling at each other and then they just fuck like like mm-hmm. that is so real to like like I've I've literally had relationships that ended with like both of us just being like well fuck you I hate you and then the next thing you know you see them like six months down the line something sparks that intrigue in you and you're banging on the table and you're just like why is this happening it's a bad idea we shouldn't be doing it. it's not going to work but like. That just adds to those layers. Like, so when people say, like, well, sex scenes aren't necessary in film, I'm just like, no, that is a perfect example because people get together for a reason. Like, they have that fire in them. And sometimes that stuff comes up, and sometimes in vulnerability, sometimes you can't resist, even though you know it's bad for you, you know, it's not going to work out. And you get to the point where, like, you know, that, like, probably in two days, she's going to shoot the gun at the ceiling at me. (laughs) <laughs> like you're just gonna you're gonna go yeah. for it and i and i and i think this is one of the ultimate examples for this my minor nitpick yeah. why sex is necessary in movies because like yeah. it adds dimension and flavor and all kinds of stuff to it it's amazing yeah. mm-hmm. and i'll
3: add the other end of that violence like you mentioned the other scene where penelope cruz shoots right. the gun in the beginning of the movie right which has like the violent invocations, the hilarious hilarity of it too it's a funny scene like that's one of the few scenes where the audience burst out laughing but yeah everything you mentioned just penelope cruz is just hurrying this movie when I watch it well it's also a, it's also kind of a Hitchcockian device too because like you know Hitchcock always
1: said okay. like if you know the bomb is under the table while you're watching mm-hmm. two people talk at the table like the tension rises the fact yeah. that I don't know a lot about this story I don't know anything about Ferrari right the fact that she's willing to like shoot at him like in the first two scenes like it mm-hmm. makes every interaction they have extra yeah. volatile because i don't know does mm-hmm. she have the fucking gun in her pocket like is she is he gonna yeah. do something and well, exactly. fucking
3: shoot him. more of a metaphor sorry because a yeah. yeah. me- good metaphor too she has like the money in her pocket control the of the company like the way she controls him um and the way that yep. is, is, is yeah fascinating and powerful um that, that's why i would she watch can do it like because everyone else in this cast is just so like lackluster
0: yeah that's uh, why i would watch a movie just about her i, I don't need anything else like not
3: you even made a car point on of how many other good movies kind of come out of just these of, of her character and these other stories that are related Mm -hmm. to her, like this whole war, the absence of war in this, that's just like mentioned. Right. Uh, Right. There's a ton you can do with that as a backdrop, as a a way to to, to get into this character through this movie, I thought was lacking. Um, The single mom after a war would have given um, Charlene Woodley a little, a little, not redemptive arc, but a chance to get something going in this movie where she's, she just gets to question me about the kid for the yeah. most part you know i feel, i felt bad for her she didn't have a whole lot to do here but no. she, yeah, wasn't she, like, it was she was a, really it a
1: kind of that wasn't the best written part of it and and i think yeah. also uh, we talked about uh, we talked about my friend michael fett um he brought this up that i guess the screenwriter of this it's based on his book or he's or he wrote the screenplay thirty years ago or something. And he's now mm-hmm. deceased, but it like he's right. full writing credit on this. And I think oh. that there's somewhat of a maybe a reverence for the material and for that writer because obviously this is something right. that what uh Michael Mann wanted to do that maybe they were afraid to punch it up or something, you know, punch. Cause mm. that, that is definitely one of the weaker aspects. I, I don't mind her. I don't think she's bad. I've heard some people say like, she's truly awful. And I know Don said that she can't hang no, with bad. the other actors. I don't think yeah. she's awful, but I also think that it's one of the cases of not necessarily her talent level. It's just that she doesn't have much to
2: do. Right. So, yeah. That, yeah. She's it's also her fault. Like a, this is pure material yeah. for her. Yeah. And a little bit fish out of water. Like I, I read someone say that she seems like she's still in Marin County in the film yeah Yeah. Uh, and it's not that off um but uh you know that's a a little quip about uh what big white lies or big little lies that the show which takes place in marin county um she 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 reminds me
0: she reminds me of like mila kunis where she can never play a period piece or something dirty you know, like yeah. when Mila Kunis is in Book of Eli, post-apocalyptic, like you are a stone cold fucking stunner. Everyone else has bad dental, and here's Mila Kunis. You know, like, like Shailene Woodley's in that that's camp true. where she's just a California girl, period, and will always yeah. be. You know, and she kind of oh, has like a,
2: a classical sense to her, but she also is very sure. modern, very contemporary, oh, and yeah. it's yeah, hard for you right. to think of her back then or see her and put her into a period piece in your mind. Whereas Penelope mm-hmm. Cruz does. Oh everything. Uh, yeah. Capture it. It's just because her intensity is its own thing. It's 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 like this energy, this this dark pall over the film that transcends these thoughts that you have when you're watching Shailene Woodley, Part, partly because, as we have all said right now, she doesn't have a lot of material to, to work with. Um, if I have another reason why I think this might not resonate as much with people, and it's it's very divisive. Some people absolutely love it. It's in a lot of top 10 lists. I think it was in the AFI top 10. Um mm-hmm some Mm -hmm. prominent critics' top tens. But I've seen a lot of people pan it. A lot of people call it tedious and boring and complain about the accent. So it's very much on the opposite ends, right? But if there's one thing that might be, I think, a reason why it doesn't hit uh, the nerve centers of some audience members, I think it has like three or four real storylines going on. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though it tries to make up for it by condensing the typical biopic Template to like, I think it's like three months or three weeks, right? Yeah, so it's very one of these
0: p- biopics, three Yeah, years.
2: Yeah, you know, instead of doing a whole life, like you know, cradle to grave, we have, and I like that. I like that when they just focus on the microcosm and it kind of gives you the full picture of their life, right? So that's smart. But we have this idea of you know lineage and legacy. We have the idea of you know pursuing technological and engineering excellence versus human life. We have the marital stuff, and then we have like this this crash, and then. They're not all quite coalescing, I think, in the way that audiences want. So, like, that crash overtakes the film, and Mm -hmm. I don't think they spend enough time on it. And so, and then it ends with this great tour de force scene between, you know, uh, Enzo and his wife, or his ex wife, or now his technical wife, but for all Mm -hmm. intents and purposes, his ex wife, right? Which is another great scene, but it feels like the crash is so intense and powerful and creates such a moral dilemma that even though they talk about the press and she's mad at him for being too much of the scapegoat and accepting it. So they're talking about that still. Yeah. Okay. It feels like it goes somewhere else and it's more about his name and lineage and so forth. Mm-hmm. And but that's, I think, I think yeah. that's yeah.
1: kind of the point. Though. I think that's kind of the point though, is that in the end, all that really matters in the end is the name. It doesn't matter that this traumatic, I mean, yeah like i think there's a scene uh, forgive my memory but like I, I think there's a scene like right after the crash where like he gets to visit the crash site and like the first thing he does is like check out his own vehicle and be like hey what happened <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. like, like it's it's there is a disconnect there and i think that's kind of the point is that mm-hmm. you go from this emotional moment the emotional moment of the crash is more for the audience not the mm-hmm. characters because the characters are unfazed by this. We already saw this, when the pretty driver pretty strange dies strange. in the beginning, that this is not going to phase him. You know, like,
2: Mm-mm.
1: you know, this is, this is part of why this brand and this name is, is now yeah. going to be a little bit stained for me is because yeah, the crash, call, the, there. the crash doesn't matter to them as much as no, it does to us, the audience who hopefully all have, you know, uh, what do you call it? Amateur. Consciences.
2: <laughs> you mm-hmm. right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the, the the race is preceded by this big speech, the biggest I think sports moment in the film. I think the race itself has a few scenes that are kind of exciting, but and it's kind of cool to see yeah, the countryside yeah. and and then yeah, Rome definitely. and so forth. Yeah, I like but a convertible cars, the goggles, and the yeah, oh yeah, stuff. Like, yeah, it's that's throwback fun, stuff But it, that we
0: don't even see, you know.
2: As we've already said, though the, the end of the race is undercut by the tragedies, the, it's an afterthought that Patrick Dempsey's yeah. character even wins, right? But I think that. That, I loved, I loved yeah, that. Yeah. I love that's really interesting. But the big sports trope moment is him as like the sort of coach figure, getting angry at his racers and telling them basically he expects them to push the line, to sacrifice the, their lives to be martyrs. They need to have that perilous edge mm. to push them to greatness, right? And I mean that mm-hmm. is, if anything, the most glaring. Um, you could either say, if you want to be ethical, indictment of his character, or just the most glaring depiction of who he is and what his values are, right? Or His
3: Will's point: the manipulative speech, because you know he's using them as tools. Like it's he doesn't like as he says he has an order in which he knows they're going to. He wants them to win. And then if they don't win, the next one's going to go. Uh, kind of speaking to Will's point, the idea of when he first shows up, he checks his car just like when first crash we get. He just hires someone, right? Right after the crash. Right, mm-hmm. it's a that shock. It's a good way of depicting that callousness of the character, for sure. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, ni- the nicest thing that happens in this movie,
1: and I still think about it, is is that after like the quote unquote bad guys from uh, what is what's the other company. Um maserati maserati like crashes and the guy's like yeah just come in, drive with me like that's oh, yeah. the nicest thing that happens in this movie it's like <laughs> i'm not gonna make you walk 40 miles back home so just drive with me while i win the race you <laughs> lost loser
3: mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like yeah. the other coach is like you should have walked back right <laughs> yeah you did more damage if you had you just not just walked back <laughs>
2: yep I mean, in one of the tragic ironies too, though, right? If you're following closely, the Maserati drivers are already out of the race. So by the time the tragedy yeah. happens, they're racing against themselves. It's completely sure. anticlimactic. And he has that exchange mm-hmm. between another, I think, one of the Ferrari, um, I don't know, mechanics who is telling yeah. him, like, why don't you tell them to back off? And he says, they're competitors. They race. This is what they do. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell them to ever, like, right. you know, relax or, or take their, you know, their foot off the pedal. Um, and that kind of, I think, gets to the ethos of who he is, also as a character. And the last, like, I think, crucial thing we haven't brought up yet happens early in the film, where someone says that. Uh, I think he says himself. Enzo says that he doesn't race to sell cars. He sells cars so he could race. Right. And I would push that further. He he sells uh, cars so he can race, so that he can figure out how to create a better machine. So I think that he's truly after the design, and he's more concerned with pushing the the materiality of the automobile, the car forward, than than, than the ephemerality of a race or two. I don't think that's his prerogative. And I think that they get at it in quite a few ways, to say that he really cares about about using racing as a conduit to push the technology to create the greatest cars that ever existed. Um, And I find that an interesting thing. Um, in a sports movie, I, I feel like the engineering part is a little bit underplayed, but a huge part of this film.
1: Yeah, um, sorry guys, yeah, just know. a little sidebar right here. Since last week, the game is still on TV. Uh, obviously, <laughs> we, we podcast the game is on. There, Like literally, in the last three plays, there's been two pick sixes by the Texans. This is kind of while I watch it. Talk about a talk about a crash. The, wow, is oh. crashing out right now? Anyway, go ahead, continue. Sorry. want to do we want to uh, we uh we wrap
0: up wrap, any final yeah, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm good. Yeah, no, just like a, a nice middle movie, um, part of the accomplishment. Nice to have Michael Mann back. Uh go Penelope Cruz for an Oscar Nom for sure.
1: Yeah, she'll she'll get it. She won't win, obviously, but
0: No, no, you know, no. This is this is Divine Randolph. Yeah.
1: This might be one of the few nominations it gets to. I can see maybe some technical stuff because uh he is a very precise director mm-hmm. in terms of like Jordan has mentioned, you know, like with everything from set design to uh, you know production design to sound and and things like that. Um, but uh, I can't see it getting a lot, so it, it is it is Oscar, you know, relevant, but it's not going to have a lot of nominations or any wins, probably.
2: Yeah, hopefully Penelope at least gets in there, um, and yeah, I would actually prefer over Divine Randolph. I love. I love uh, her as an actress. Actually, her work in the idol I think is better than in the holdovers, where she's mm-hmm. great. But I feel like it's a—it's such an easy role. It's such a—it is a, a, a premeditated role, and it doesn't mm-hmm. even have a, a full resolution. She becomes a sort of—I guess she is in for best supporting actress, but she yeah. becomes like just a, a, a conduit for the other characters' third act. Right there, resolutions. So she's totally. kind of by the wayside by the end of the film. It's very bizarre to me that it's getting as mm-hmm. much love as it's getting.
1: I think the holdovers personally is the great sideways makeup Oscar campaign. Because I all the so. stuff they Please all do. the stuff all the stuff they denied sideways, they're gonna make up for with this movie because I don't think I think it's fine. It's a, a very fine movie, but not to the level of what everyone's saying. But that's just that's just my little mini review of
2: the holders.
1: <laughs> so, uh, uh, so jordan and paul tell us real quick tell the viewers just or the listeners just in case they haven't they haven't listened to our black hat episode if it uh where we can find you on terms of the podcast social media all those things
2: yeah i'll take this one since i guess jordan took the last one And you could throw anything at the end that i leave out um we're on all the platforms uh for podcasts basically because we put it up through anchor so it's on spotify itunes um google podcasts you know all all the fixings uh we're also on twitter uh you can look us up by our handle cinematic underscore under uh on letterboxd where we put all our reviews for our podcast episodes and beyond that's just cinematic underdogs Uh, the easiest way is to get in the google chat we have good seo actually luckily Knock on wood still. So if you put in cinematic underdogs, we pop up pretty much right away So you'll be able to find our stuff. So um, check us out. We do sports movies. So we're entirely dedicated to that. If you didn't listen to the Black Hat ep- episode, we explain it in detail there. But we cover anything from like 90s classics like Rudy to Netflix docuseries like the Untold series to peripheral stuff like post-apocalyptic racing stuff like we did. I love it. Uh, with-
1: that's my favorite part. That's my favorite subgenre of the cinematic underdogs. Uh,
3: oeuvre. I'm
1: using big oeuvre. words. Uh,
2: <laughs> I'm impressed.
3: I, I'm impressed with that one. Damn. I, I got I to gotta Google that one. <laughs> well, guys,
1: it was a pleasure having you on. Great conversations. Um, thank you for joining us on this, du- this double man feature thing. Um, but time for us to do a little self-promotion as well. Uh, Cinephile His it has merch. We got shirts, stickers, all kinds of stuff, and it's popular with people of all ages, as we've discovered. Uh, so come get your sweet Cinephile Hizzy Fit swag at TPublic. That's T E E, T Public.com slash user slash ruminations radio network. Follow uh, Cinephile Hizzy Fit on Twitter at Cinephile Fit, on Facebook at Cinephile Hizzy Fit Podcast, and Instagram at Cinephile Fits. Find both of us by name, me and Don, on Letterboxd to check out our film reviews and ratings. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, and we are charter members of the Independent Film Critics of America. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership in our tussles and for connecting with us on social media. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a Ruminations Radio Network podcast sponsored by Film Obsessive. If you enjoyed this show, the Ruminations Radio Network has more excellent programming with stellar hosts and spirited topics. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show and others on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.